All right, beloved, let's pray and then turn our attention to God's word. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we give you praise and thanks for this day that you have made. Teach our hearts to be glad in it. For Lord, you have numbered our days from before the foundation of the world. Teach us to fear you, to reverence you, to honor you in all that we do. We thank you, Lord, for the Pierre family. We praise you for their faithfulness to you in Phoenix and beyond. We thank you that you have set us in your family. We have brothers and sisters like the Pierres all over the world bearing witness to your grace and your mercy, being a leavening influence, salt and light in this dark world. And we pray your blessings upon them as a family. We pray your blessings upon Roosevelt Community Church and all of its elders and all of its members. And we pray your blessings upon Sister Danae and the Creek Collective and its member churches and planters. Lord, prosper them in every way we ask. And Lord, we pray that you would prosper us this morning as we hear your word. Open our hearts to receive your word, to believe it. Speak to us, O oh Lord, about meaningful things, deep things, hard things even. And give us hope, O oh Lord, from your word, through your spirit. Give us hope. Lift the downcast. Brighten the face of the mourner. Come near those who lament. Build up, O oh Lord, those who feel weak. Comfort the broken. Do all these things and many more. Through your word and your spirit, we pray. Do all that only you can do in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Esther chapter 2. Esther chapter 2, beginning in verse 19, and this morning we will work our way through the end of chapter 3. As you turn there, let me give you just a little bit of a review. The people of Israel are in exile. Some generations before, Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon, had conquered Israel and carried off the leadership and all the people of Israel and destroyed Jerusalem. It's a few generations later now, and uh, Israelite people are spread throughout now um, the Medo-Persian Empire. A king named Ahasuerus is on the throne. And we meet Ahasuerus in chapter 1 of Esther, and we find out that he's this lavish, rich, powerful, but ultimately volatile person who objectifies his wife and gets rid of her, Queen Vashti. And in chapter 2, we find out that he's also someone who is susceptible to the influence of the people around him. In fact, it was Memukin in chapter 1 who convinced him to get rid of his queen. Now in chapter 2, he's surrounded by several young men who convince him to replace his queen by having an empire-wide beauty contest, if you want to call it that. But it is the society-wide objectification of women. And so in chapter 2, a young Jewish woman who has, has not told anyone that she's Jewish becomes queen. He selects, um, he selects Hadassah, a Hebrew name, uh, otherwise known as Esther. And Esther becomes queen. She has been raised by her cousin Mordecai, who treats her as his very own daughter, who loves her and expresses consistent concern for her. But like a lot of young, beautiful virgins, as chapter 2 puts it, she has been taken by the king into his harem and now made the queen. And life seems to keep going on. And God's people in the book of Esther are living as exiles in a foreign land, dealing with the kinds of injustices and pressures and struggles that a conquered people have to deal with in a foreign land. And we've made observation in both of our sermons thus far that, that Esther is kind of famous in, for, for being a book of the Bible where God isn't explicitly mentioned. Now, we've seen God moving by his providence, but that little detail, God's not mentioned, I think is meant to perhaps 
force us to think about what it means to be an exilic people, to be a people who are exiled from our home. In the Christian sense, we're not yet in glory. We're not yet in heaven. We are sojourners through this world. We are exiles, as Peter says, in this world. What it's like to be exiles in a place and not hear from God. Not necessarily see or recognize the hand of God. And for things to get so bad that one might be tempted to think that God has forsaken us. That's really what we're building to in the book of Esther. And that's what we're sort of building to in this section now. As we think about Esther chapter 2 and 3, I want to suggest that one way we might sort of put this whole section into one main point is to put it this way. When things look their worst for God's people, when things look their worst for God's people, God's people must look to God for deliverance. God's people must look to God for deliverance. Now, as we work through this chapter, I want to also suggest to you that what we have unfolded before us is kind of a historical example of the development of systemic racism and systemic injustice. The development of systemic religious persecution and oppression. And so I want to suggest to you that we can see this development in four movements. This is the outline for the sermon this morning. Number one, the first thing to do to get systemic injustice, systemic racism, systemic persecution off the ground is to overlook the presence and the contributions of a group. To overlook the presence, to overlook the humanity, to overlook the contributions of a group. We'll see that in verses 19 to 23 of chapter 2. Number two, then, secondly, what, what you have to do is to allow personal and historical conflict to fuel hatred. You gotta allow personal and historical conflict to fuel hatred. Number three, then someone has to use power and influence to turn that hatred into law. To turn that hatred into law. And finally, number four, you have to enforce that law through local practice. You have to enforce that law through local practice. That's the anatomy of systemic injustice, systemic racism, as we see it in this text. And that's what God's people sometimes have to contend with. And when we need to deal with these things, we need most of all to look to God for deliverance. Hear now the word of the Lord, Esther chapter 2, beginning in verse 19. Now, when the virgins gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther. And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down to pay homage. When, when the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's command?" And, and when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of the king of Ahasuerus, 
they cast pur, that is, they cast lots, before Haman day after day. And they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also, to do with them, to do with them as it seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and an edict according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel, and the king and Haman sat down to drink. But the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. How does systemic injustice come to be? Well, the first step I want to suggest to you is that to overlook the presence and the contributions of particular groups, to disregard their humanity and their value in society. We see this in two ways in verses 19 to 23. First of all, in verses 19 and 20, we see the, the, the overlooking of the humanity and the dignity of the young women. Verse 19 opens by telling us that it's when the virgins were gathered together the second time. Now, it's not clear what this refers to. Verses 12 and 15 seem to suggest that the, the virgins had already appeared to King Ahasuerus once. And in fact, the contest was over. Esther had been chosen as queen. And indeed, in verse 18, the king had thrown a banquet for her and celebrated it and announced it around the kingdom. So this business of taking the young women into his harem should have been over. For here it is for a second time, they are taken. Perhaps now, if you remember the process, once they appeared before the king, they would not go back to the king, but, but would go into his concubinage. They would become concubines of the kings in the care of a man named Shazgaz in verse 14. We don't know what the second appearance is, but in any case, these women's lives are again being controlled and exploited by the king. The king is continuing to prey upon these young women despite having a new queen. He's continuing to objectify these women for his own gratification, his own sinful lust. And he and everyone else seems to look the other way. It's not a hint of protest here in this verse. This has become, it seems, standard affair. To objectify women and to overlook their dignity and their humanity. No one seems to care. But then number two, we see the, the overlooking of the contributions of Mordecai. Verse 21, or verse 19, excuse me, begins to tell us about the conspiracy to kill King Ahasuerus. Mordecai gets wind of it. He hurriedly tells Esther. Esther goes and tells the king, and notice the text says, in the name of Mordecai, being careful to give credit to Mordecai for intervening in this plot to kill the king. 
they investigate whether or not this is true, and they find out that it's true. And when they find out that it's true, they hang the two men who have been plotting to assassinate the king. The last thing we're told in verse 23 is that all this was written down in a book, in the Chronicles. And the story just moves on. Now, it's interesting. We're told a couple of times that Mordecai is sitting at the gate. He's sitting at the gate. You see that there in verse 19, verse 21? The Bible is repeating that to draw our attention to where these things are happening. And in the ancient world, in a city gate, that would be the place where business was conducted. That would be the place where um, uh, the courts would be held and the elders would sit in the city gate administering the business of the city. So it seems that Mordecai, even though he's in exile, has in some ways sort of progress in that, in that foreign system. He is sitting in the city gate among the officials as one of the officials conducting the king's business. Now, in the ancient world, if you save the king's life or you do something significant for the reign of the king, typically the king would honor you in some way. I mean, if you, you keep a brother from getting jacked as he's going in his house, you, you would think that would be acknowledged in some significant way. But not here. That contribution, the benefit of it is taken and accepted, but the acknowledgement of it is not yet done. Mordecai is probably carrying out God's instructions through Jeremiah to the exiles. You remember when we were thinking about Jeremiah 29, verses 5-11 in the Blessed Block series, that one of the things the exiles were told to do was to work for the welfare of the city to which he was sending Mordecai is very much doing that as, as an exile. He is working for the welfare of the king. And yet his contribution is unacknowledged. He's, in that sense, erased here. First thing to do, if we want to begin to marginalize people, is overlook them. Not acknowledge them. Not celebrate their contributions. But in the way of application, I want us to pause here for a moment and, and consider a question that a sister asked me after sermon review last week. We were thinking, you remember, in these first two sermons about the objectification of women and the oppression of women in Esther's time. And she said, how should we feel about these things? It's so easy to read the Bible without feeling, isn't it? To just sort of breeze through it gather up the facts of the story, and never really have the story impact us. Because we're so accustomed to not feeling. We're so accustomed to turning feeling off so that we're not overwhelmed, so that we're not moved in ways that we don't particularly want to be moved. But when we read the Bible, we should try to emotionally enter these stories, emotionally enter these histories. We should try to imagine and experience what the people of the Bible felt. So how would Israelites in exile in Babylon have felt to have their daughters taken away, made to be a part of the harem of the king? How might they have felt to contribute to that society and be overlooked, to have all of the fruit of their labors taken and enjoyed, but to receive none of the recognition? I think they probably felt a whole range of things. Grief. Anger. Sorrow. Fear. Panic. Lament. Compassion. Probably a desire to act or protest that would be quickly followed by a sense of helplessness and being overwhelmed and too small and insignificant. These things probably would have washed over them in waves over years. And these are the kinds of things that probably should wash over us as we enter these horrific stories, as we see injustice here in the scripture, and as we look up at our own world and see injustice in our 
own role. Christians should be feeling people. Our hearts should be soft and active in response to the world that the Lord has called us into. When we see the humanity and the contributions of others ignored, we should be emotionally moved. We should, we should feel some kind of way about some things. To not be moved with feeling is to be a part of the problem instead of the solution. So we want to be careful that we don't practice numbing ourselves or looking the other way when we see injustice. Instead, we should practice feeling when we see injustice. And honestly, for many of us, progress in the faith probably has a lot to do with whether or not we have learned to feel and to process feeling in a healthy way. So the first thing I just want to exhort us to as we read these things and think about these things is to become acquainted with our hearts, to become acquainted with godly emotion, and to respond to these things, not just with thought, but to respond to these things with with feeling from soul. Well, here's here's a second application question, not just how should we feel about these things, but number two, what role should we play in acknowledging, documenting, telling and celebrating the stories of marginalized people around us and their contributions. I mean, should we just sort of move on and and leave these folks unrecognized, uncelebrated? Should we just move on and and forget that Mordecai had done what he he did? Or or should we do something different? I think our basic role is expressed for us in Proverbs 31, 8 and 9. It's over the years become um, two of my favorite verses in the Scripture. And the, the, the writer of Proverbs says this, Open your mouth for the mute those who can't speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and the needy. Now, we we can live in a system where we feel overwhelmed and small, probably like Mordecai did, probably the way Esther did, and we can't do everything, but we must not do nothing. We can't do everything, but one thing we can do is we can all speak. We can all speak up. We can all acknowledge. We can all tell the stories. We can all celebrate the contributions of those who are around us that the society would tend to overlook and marginalize. It's as simple as a hashtag on Twitter. Now, I know that hashtag activism isn't going to change the world. But it isn't nothing. It's a way of telling stories. And as Christians, we are storytellers. We are people formed by a story. The the story of God's son coming into the world, dying for our sins, being buried three days and resurrected from the grave and establishing, inaugurating his own kingdom and one day coming to consummate, to fulfill that kingdom. Our whole lives are defined by story. We are a storytelling people. Ought to be. All we need to do is add some other stories to it. I mean, to speak up for the vulnerable and the mistreated is, to, is on the Christian's job description, according to Proverbs 31. And even the use of hashtags in some small way do their part. Hashtag never again. Hashtag believe women. Hashtag me too. Hashtag church too. Hashtag black lives matter. Hashtag bring back our girls. Hashtag Oscar's so white. All of these help us to tell the stories and to make the acknowledge the contributions of others. Again, it doesn't fix everything. It's not designed to, but it plays an important role in speaking, in acknowledging. These are ways of moving people who have been forced to the margins back toward the center a little bit. They acknowledge presence and humanity and contribution. I mean, what is hashtag say her name if not a demand that we acknowledge a woman's identity and humanity in cases of abuse and mistreatment against them? So Christian, maybe you can think about this over lunch today today or later this evening as you meditate on the scripture or in the Q&A session, but, but, but how can we use our voices to tell the stories of those who have been marginalized and erased? See, if the first step 
in establishing systemic injustice, systemic racism, systemic religious persecution is to dehumanize and overlook, then the first step in resistance is combating that silence, opening our mouths to speak up, to rehumanize by telling the stories and feeling with those who have so been mistreated. That's point number one. Point number two. The next step in creating a system of injustice is to allow personal and historical conflict to to fuel hatred, especially among the powerful. That's what I want to suggest we see in chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. In chapter 3, verses 1 to 2, there's a new character who steps on the scene, a fellow by the name of Haman. Chapter 1 told us, again, that there were seven princes of the Medes and the Persians who used to advise the king. You remember chapter 1 said they were the only ones who could see his face regularly. Well, they disappear after chapter 1. And in chapter 2, um, we, we, we get these, these seven young men uh, who are the king's servants who advise him. And so we've gone from this sense that the king's presence is really restricted to a a select few to this sense that even the servants can come into his presence. Till finally, in chapter 3, someone who's been a stranger to us in this story so far, he is now in the king's presence, and the king raises him up to number two in the land. We're not told why, but, but Haman is promoted above all the other officials. His throne is lifted above all the other officials. He's only number two to the king himself. Again, the Bible doesn't tell us why, but we get the sense that this is a shady character. Joyce Baldwin, in her commentary on Esther, says, Since King Xerxes, who does not seem to have been a good judge of character, had to command his nobles to bow down to Haman, it appears that Haman was not highly thought of by his fellow officials. Uh, What kind of honor can be commanded by law? It's no honor at all, is it? And you would think now that this kind of honor of elevating someone among the other officials, that this is the kind of honor that Mordecai would have received for saving the king's life. But instead it's given to Haman. It's a contrast between unrewarded loyalty and undeserved promotion. But who is this Haman? Remember from Esther 2 verse 5 that Mordecai is a descendant of Kish, who is the father of Saul. So Mordecai is a Benjaminite who is related to the first king of Israel, King Saul. Now, when we meet Haman, we're told over and over again that he's an Agagite. You know, who's like, I don't know what that was. I had to look that up. Agag was an Amalekite. In fact, he was a king of the Amalekites uh, in the time of Saul. And so what you have here is Haman, who is a descendant of King Agag of the Amalekites on the sort of one side, and Mordecai, who is a descendant of King Saul of the Benjaminites of Israel on the other side. You have sort of the the family histories and the family lineages of conflict between Israel and the Amalekites sort of coming to the surface here. It was Saul who conquered Agag. You you might remember the story. God had commanded Israel several times in the Old Testament that when you're in the land and you encounter the Amalekites, destroy the Amalekites completely. Destroy the sheep, destroy the cattle, wipe them out completely because the Amalekites are really one of the oldest first enemies of Israel. And so Saul now is commanded to to do precisely that. Saul goes, he defeats Agag, but instead of killing Agag, instead of wiping out all the cattle, Saul spares Agag, brings him in captivity, and brings some of the cattle with him. And the prophet comes out to meet Saul. He says, now, did you do what God said to do? And Saul said, yeah, 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 we were victorious. And and the prophet said, well, what's all this bleeding of sheep that I hear? God told you to destroy everything. See, Saul's disobedience haunts Israel for generations to come. See, sometimes a leader's disobedience isn't resolved just with their life. It has consequences for generations. So these are the two men now who are brought into this scene, who are brought into conflict when the king requires that Haman be honored, but Mordecai refuses. 
Notice down in Esther chapter 3, verse 10, near the end of that verse, how Haman is described, not just as an Agagite, not just the son of Hamadatha, but now the writer makes it clear, the enemy of the Jews. We've got right here now sort of personal animosity, personal conflict combined with historical ethnic strife, ethnic hatred being brought to to the surface here. This man, Haman, is carrying around centuries of hatred. Now notice the refusal of Mordecai. Mordecai will not bow to Haman. The other servants keep encouraging him to bow. They they even point out that that this is the king's command. Why are you disobeying the king's command? Verse 4, but Mordecai would not have it. Day after day, the text says, he would not listen to them. Now, we're not told explicitly why. Maybe uh, he did not respect uh, Haman. Uh, Maybe Mordecai felt overlooked, as we said, after saving the king's life. Maybe he knew the the family history uh, and the the history of ethnic conflict that went on between himself and Haman. Maybe Mordecai had a religious reason, but whatever the reason, that reason is connected now with Mordecai being Jewish, at least in Mordecai's mind. Whatever the reason, Mordecai has decided he will not try to pass as something other than Jewish. You remember now, Esther has been passing. He's told Esther, don't tell anybody that you're Jewish. Don't tell anybody who your people are. Now, she's passing, but we've reached a point in the story where Mordecai now is going to publicly draw the line for himself. And he tells people, I'm Jewish. And that's why the other servants rat him out. You see that there the end of verse 4? They told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. Haman now, in verses 5 to 6, see how he reacts. He he sees that Mordecai doesn't bow. He's He's the kind of man who would put himself intentionally into some situation to sort of test whether someone would bow to him. But Haman didn't bow. And Mordecai gets furious. In fact, the name, or excuse me, Haman gets furious. In fact, the name Haman sounds pretty close to the Hebrew word for wrath. It's like his name is anger. Once again, anger is driving someone powerful toward destruction rather than peace. Just as King Ahasuerus in his anger responded harshly to Vashti, could have responded differently, but he didn't. His anger ruled him. Now Haman, who could have responded differently to Mordecai, could have had a conversation. But his fury and his hatred are driving him. And then his pride kicks in. The Bible says Haman disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. The word disdain there could be translated disdain in his eyes. He kind of looked down on Mordecai and, and sort of thought that just, just tackling Mordecai is not enough for me. After all, I'm number two in the land. I'm next only to the king. You know what I need to do? I don't need to just take out Mordecai. I need to take out all the Jews in all the providence in the entire empire. It's a wicked kind of pride that's happy to launch a plan for genocide. That's what we have happening here. And what flowers here is Haman's personal racism. As I said, he commits himself to destroying or annihilating all the Jews because one Jew didn't bow to him. He wants to do to Jewish people, get this, what God had commanded Israel to do to the Amalekites. Here's a man who is standing himself up in opposition to God. Not just to Mordecai, not to just the Jews, but standing himself up in opposition to what God had actually determined would happen between these two people. There are plenty of examples of anti-Semitism in the Bible, but this perhaps is the most famous, the most clear. So how do we apply this? How should we think about this? I just want to give us a warning, an admonishment. Let each of us beware of turning some individual offense into a racial stereotype 
and the grounds for group prejudice. I have many times been in conversations where someone has been expressing a kind of group prejudice, and, and the root of that prejudice has been some individual experience they had. So someone from some group mistreated them in some way, and that became justification for them to sort of distrust in the light sense or to overtly hate everyone in that group. You know, Haman is here and Mordecai doesn't bow. And instead of just dealing with Mordecai, he, he decides that, no, I need to get rid of all of the Jews. And, and let us be further careful that we don't turn the history of antagonisms between people into justification for our own racism today. The conflict with the Amalekites and the Israelites is ancient, and it's real, and that history is real. And there's much that would need to be told about that history and understood about that history. But the reason we want to tell that history and to understand that history is so that we don't carry forward the racial animosity and bigotry that people tend to carry forward and justify based on history. I got a lot of complaints about how black people are treating this country. I got a lot of complaints about how immigrants are treated in this country. I got a lot of complaints about how many women, most women, are treated in this country. What I cannot do, beloved, if I'm going to follow Jesus, is allow that to become the grounds for hatred in my own heart. Let us never confuse the work for justice with, with basically an expression of hatred. Those are not the same thing, beloved. Those are not the same thing. And let us make sure that any anger we have about injustice is a righteous anger, not a worldly, fleshly anger that makes us, the church, look exactly like the world rather than distinct. We don't want to be Haman. We don't want to give ourselves to this kind of prejudice. Now, notice the third thing that happens as we move through this story. Now, we're going to see the, the use of power and influence to turn racism into law. That's what we see in verses 7 to 11. This is the third step of creating a system of injustice, whether it's religious persecution or racism or sexism or whatever the case may be. Haman decides to approach the king. See that in verse 7? He can't kill the Jews without the permission of the king. He's just number two in the society, so he's got to get the king on his side. He tries to find the right time. That's what verse 7 is about, the, the casting of pur or the casting of lots. Pur is the Hebrew word there for lots. Notice that they do that for an entire year. Day after day, month after month, in front of Haman, they are casting lots, which is this way, closest analogy, we might think of dice or something. They're, they're casting these, these dice, and they're reading these dice as a way of trying to interpret what the will of God is. And, and, and they, they're trying to decide when to act. And, and, and so now, notice what happens. They get a date, they get an idea in mind, and in verse 8, Haman speaks to the king. I want you to notice about four things about how he speaks to the king. First, he first mentions certain people. You see that there in verse 8? He does not mention the Jewish people by name. He's dehumanizing the Jews by not being specific about their identity or their religion. Now, get this now, get this now, because this is disputed by some evangelical and fundamentalist types, but it's, it's right here in the Bible. And it's, right here, and it's right here in our lived experience. Now, get this. Some racist policies use race-neutral language. His entire agenda is to wipe out the Jews as a people, but he don't announce that. It's certain people in your kingdom that need to be dealt with. Oh, beloved, we need to stop that sort of immature thinking about racism that acts as if someone's not a racist because they didn't say they were a racist. Grow up. And notice the second thing. Haman defines them also as enemies. He mentions that they are, notice, scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. He's trying to say they are a clear and present danger. They are a threat everywhere that they are. They're, they're all over your kingdom. They're like, they're like yeast in a batch of dough. You better watch out because you don't know what corner they're going to come around. 
And then next, number three, Haman tries to basically other the Jews. Notice he says, their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's law. They're not like any of your other subjects, and they're not like you, O king. They got their own laws, which on one level is true. They've got God's law. But on another level, it's completely a twisting of the facts in order to make them some strange other, to make them sort of some enemy foreigner inside the kingdom. Haman draws attention not to their contributions, but to their differences. He's trying to play on the king's fears. If the Jews are treated as others, then it won't seem like they are hurting real people or hurting people they should care about. This is the problem with othering others. Careful of that. Notice number four. Remember now, he's trying to get his racism into law. Notice number four. Finally, Haman appeals to the king's self-interest. He says, so, sounding all reasonable. It, it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. He even offers to pay the king 10,000 talents of silver, which is a lot of money. Uh, the commentators would tell us that's almost the sort of whole year's income of the entire empire. That's a lot of money. And of course, according to verse 13, he's going to pay for it by plundering the Jews. He's going to steal their property, and that's going to be revenue. That's, it's a wicked thing to get revenue from genocide. So he's going to pay for his bribe to the king by stealing their property, property of those he killed. Same thing that happened in the Holocaust, by the way. See, everything comes back to self-interest and greed. It's not in your interest, O king. See, this is a perfect recipe for getting racism or religious persecution or sexism, any other kind of sin of that sort, put into law and, and to make it, therefore, systemic. This is how personal racism becomes a systemic thing rather than just a personal thing. This is how racists can act like racists while claiming the law is neutral. Verse 10 and 11, the king gives Haman authority to put this plan into action, gives him his signet ring, which is a sign of his authority, and says, basically, go and do what you want to do. So let's make a couple applications of this. First of all, let's think about racist advisors and race-neutral laws. And, and let's maybe step out of the ancient text and come down a little bit to American history. Is that all right? It's going to have to be. That's what we're going to do. In America, beloved, we get the opportunity, those of us citizens, to vote for elected officials, to elect officials. Haman, though, reminds us, Haman reminds us to pay attention not only to the candidates who are on the ballot, but also to the advisors to the candidates. See, America has a history of political advisors quietly enacting racist policies while insisting they are not racist. Let me give you just one example. A few of you may be old enough to remember the name Lee Atwater. Lee Atwater was a Republican political consultant. Now, if you're a Republican, don't trip out. He could have been a Democrat. Doesn't matter. Racism is in both parties. He's a Republican political consultant. He worked on campaigns for longtime racist senators like Strom Thurmond. And he eventually worked on the campaigns of Ronald Reagan and were in the administration of, of both Bush presidents. It was Lee Atwater who gave us the famous Willie Horton ad that ended Michael Dukakis's run for president. And it was Lee Atwater who explained to us for the first time on the record, or he thought off the record, it became the record, the infamous Southern strategy. Anybody know what the Southern strategy was? The Southern strategy was used by Republicans to win political offices in the South. It was during a time when 50s and 60s when African-Americans were leaving the Republican Party, moving over toward the Democratic Party, largely over matters of race. And Republicans kind of looked at that and decided, you know what, actually, we're not going to be able to win the black vote anymore. Maybe we can get 10% of the black vote. So what we have to do is shore up the vote of white Southerners, the vote of white racists, but we, we can't look like racists while we do it. 
Now, Atwater explains it in an article that came out in 1981. You can, you can look this up. You can Google it. You can, you can actually hear the whole interview from which this comes. Here's how Lee Atwater put it. Excuse me, I'm going to use the N-word because he used the N-word. He says, you start out in 1954, you're trying to get votes. You start out in 1954 by saying, nigger, nigger, nigger. By 1968, you can't say nigger. That hurts you, backfires. So you say stuff like, uh, forced busing, states' rights, and all that stuff, and you're, you're getting so abstract. Now, you're talking about cutting taxes and all these things you're talking about are totally economic things, and a byproduct of them is blacks get hurt worse than whites. We want to cut this. It's much more abstract than even the busing thing. And excuse me, a hell of a lot more abstract than nigger, nigger. You see what he's saying? Let's shift our political discourse away from explicitly racist language and themes, and let's move over to race-neutral things, all the while knowing that the things we're talking about are going to hurt black folk more than hurt white folk. And we're going to get the vote that we need to hold office. What am I trying to illustrate here? It's this. Lee Atwater was never president. You see, the influence of racist men on people in power to create racist laws and systems is real from the time of Haman all the way down to Lee Otwater, all the way down to our day. And that's because sin and sinful men have not changed. You see, we must understand it's the power sitting next to the power that often does the ugliest things in political systems. People with access to power have actual power. They can influence power to, to turn hatred into law without ever naming it as such. And some Christians like to pretend the Hamans of Esther's day don't exist in our day, in the America of our day. But I'm here to tell you that America is Babylon in all the same ways. America is part of the world system that is hostile to God and hostile to God's people. If Christians are going to be prophetic in this country, we had better learn to see the country accurately instead of through the rose-colored glasses of Christian nationalism. Which brings me to a second application on critical race theory. Right now, again, those same evangelical and fundamentalist voices are tearing up churches and tearing up the country and tearing up school boards and influencing elected officials to make critical race theory the boogeyman that everybody ought to be scared of right now. They can't define it, but it's bad. And it's bad because it's, it's, it's anti-white racism, they tell us. Beloved, nothing could be more vital for people who are living under the boot of society than that they develop a critical posture and understanding of the laws that oppress them. And nothing could be more vital for their own survival and that they develop this understanding with such sophistication, with such analysis, that they are able to, in fact, detect threats to their existence when they are enacted, especially when they are enacted without the overt language of the racists. And nothing could be more vital to their survival than that they do that, develop that perspective, develop that analysis, develop that ability to spot threats from an oppressive majority society, that they do that without apology and without sort of the gaslighting that would put the oppressor in the center of the picture. Folk big mad about CRT. Again, not understanding it. But what they're really big mad about is that some people have deigned to understand that racism is endemic to this society and it has its effect in this system whether or not people are being explicitly racist.
That's what Mordecai needed to understand. That's what a Dr. King needed to understand. That's what a Derrick Bell needs to understand. That's what everybody who cares about justice needs to understand. That's what everyone who cares about righteousness needs to understand. Beloved, do not be taken in by people who want to make CRT a boogeyman. Christian, you don't need critical race theory to be a Christian that challenges systemic injustice. And you don't need to allow those folks to rhetorically and strategically put that baggage on you as if you have been out there touting the worst things that are under the label of CRT. You've been reading your Bible. Stand on your Bible. Make the Bible plain. Understand the Bible. Read the Bible like a slave. This is slave literature. Read the Bible with a kind of hermeneutic of suspicion, not the one that the left talks about where you're suspicious of the Bible, but where you're suspicious of the society that does not love God or its people. And come up from your Bible back into the world with light and wisdom and understanding and be unshakable and steadfast. CRT ain't the problem in America, beloved. Systemic racism and religious persecution are the problems. Don't be distracted by people who attack CRT instead of attacking racism. Recognize them for the distraction that they are and recommit yourself to doing the biblical work of fighting for justice, of speaking up for the vulnerable. That's on our job description. Let's move to our final point. The last stage in making racism or religious persecution or sexism, systemic. Number four, enforce the law with local practice, then chill. That's what we see in verses 12 to 15. In verse 12, the king's scribes write the law, notice, according to all Haman commanded. They send the law to all the king's governors and the satraps. Now, you remember in all the provinces, you remember from chapter 1, there are 127 provinces in the empire spanning from India to Ethiopia. So this is going to many different cultures and many different lands and many different languages. And in fact, they take care to make sure to write this thing down in everybody's languages and in everybody's script. And so they write this law, they pass this law, and they, they send it out to everybody. They get it into every local language. They get it into the hands of every official. It comes with the king's seal or stamp of approval on it. So it's kind of like it's been notarized. And in verse 13, notice what they are to do. The people are instructed that on a certain day to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day law for calling for complete genocide. It's kind of what happens in Rwanda. It's kind of what happens in many other places where genocide is carried out. It's in the proclamation to everyone in verse 14. They spread the law and enforcing the law is how this injustice is actually going to be baked into the system. We can't have systemic anything, sexism, racism, whatever, without systems and institutions carrying it out locally. Now, here's what you have to understand, beloved. The people in Esther chapter 3 have no idea what's going on between Haman and Mordecai. They have no idea what's in Haman's heart. They're not in the city gates. They're not in the king's courtroom. They don't, they don't understand what really gave rise to this policy. So we don't have to assume that all of them are racist. And this is really vital, beloved. This is really vital. The people and systems locally don't have to understand the racist intent behind the law in order to carry out the racist effect of the law. So when we talk about systemic racism, we are not saying everybody in the system is a racist. We're saying the system itself has a certain kind of um, propensity by design by someone to produce racist outcomes, sexist outcomes, religious persecution, you know, choose your ism. And that folks who are in the system behave as the system requires. That's all you really need for systemic injustice to perpetuate itself. 
You don't need anyone or everyone in the system to be a personal, personally a racist with a lot of hatred in their hearts. You just need the system to be designed to produce those outcomes. And from the Constitution of this United States and the slave laws before and after it, down to the segregation laws of this country and the voter suppression laws in this country, down to our day where laws sort of circumscribe where people live and things of that sort, we have had in the system racist intent. And we have seen it work throughout the system to great harm, not just to people of color, but to our white brothers and sisters too. For hatred kills, it destroys. Now notice at the end of verse 15, what do Haman and the king do? They sit down for a drink. They have a beer together. They done did their dirt, and they're like, man, let's go out on the porch, get a cold one. They go on living it up, unbothered by injustice. The city of Susa is thrown into confusion. People are like, what in the world is happening? Why did this law come down? What's going on, et cetera? They, they kind of don't know what to do. They're confused, maybe upset, maybe hurt, but the powerful kick back and chill. You know what's really interesting here? I'll make this quick note, make a couple applications, we'll be done. You know what's really interesting here? That both Haman and Mordecai are members of people groups who have been conquered by Babylon and the Medo-Persian Empire. And rather than working together to change this sort of situation or to improve their situation, they at each other's throats. It's amazing how conquered groups and suppressed groups and oppressed groups find a way to fight each other but not to work together. One of the great tragedies of, of, of this country, for example, is that black folk and poor white folk are always arguing when actually our situations and our needs are quite in common. But we've built a system where there's a, there's a premium, there's a value on whiteness. Right? And, and poor white folks have been encouraged to think that, well, at least I ain't black. Just a little bit better than my black neighbors. And black folks have been encouraged to think that it's the poor whites, who are, some of whom might be explicitly racist, who are the real problems, when actually the power brokers are kicking back and chilling, having a beer at the White House or the State House. We have to learn what really is in our common interests and work together for it. I'm going to move on. This wasn't all in the sermon, but apparently you need to hear it. If it's not already clear, I, I want to make something clear as we begin to wrap up. Systemic racism and religious persecution are the devil's work. It's the devil's work. Verse 13, look there again, sounds to me a whole lot like John 10.10. 10. You see what verse 13 says? They had come to, they're going to kill and annihilate and destroy. You remember what John 10, 10 says? Where Jesus says the thief comes to what? To steal and to kill and to destroy. Haman wants to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews. And then at the end of the verse, notice to steal too, to plunder their goods. This is Satan's playbook. And it's always the same playbook. And those who do his work run his plays. But I love what Jesus goes on to say in John 10, 10, when he says, but I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. You see, in this world of systemic injustice and racism and persecution, uh, where we see it in so many places, we must not think that the culture of death has the last word. It is abundant life that has the last word, and that's because Go ahead and praise your Lord. And that's because Jesus has conquered our sins. Jesus has conquered death so that we might have life. We might have new life and might have it to the full. That's why he came, to give eternal life and abundant life to all those who, who repent of sin and put their faith in him as the Son of God and as their Savior. The devil's work is defeated, beloved, defeated by God's word. Sometimes it doesn't look that way, but the message of Esther is that things are not always as they seem. 
when the devil hands looks the strongest, the Lord Jesus plays his trump card. God delivers those who trust in him. Perhaps you're here and you, you see your need to be delivered. You may need to be delivered from racism and bigotry. You, you may need to be delivered from sexism. You may need to be delivered from indifference and lovelessness and turning your eyes away from the things you see in the world. Those are all sins that, that condemn people to God's judgment in hell. But Jesus died. Jesus died for racists. Jesus died for sexists. Jesus died for the cold-hearted and the callous-hearted and the indifferent, not so that we can go on being racist and sexist and cold-hearted. He died so that we could have a completely new kind of life through faith in him. And in that new life, we are free from the power of sin, free from the pollution of sin, free from the pull of sin. We live not according to Satan's playbook, but we live according to God's playbook of righteousness and justice. I don't know what it is you're trusting to fix the world's injustices, but I know one solution that's guaranteed. It is the preaching of a crucified Savior who himself suffered injustice for righteousness' sake. It is the preaching of a resurrected Savior who himself is our righteousness and wisdom and sanctification. It is the preaching of a glorified Savior who is coming again with his own kingdom to gather his people. It is the preaching of a just judge who will hold to account all those who seem like they're getting away with it as they're drinking their beers. They're going to one day appear before God, and God's going to open the books, and God's going to judge every man according to his works, and unless we can claim the blood of Christ, we will be judged. But if we cling to the blood of Christ, we will be forgiven. If we cling to the blood of Christ, we will be declared righteousness. If we cling to the blood of Christ, we will have entered into the presence of God as his adopted children, not as slaves to sin, but slaves to righteousness. I don't know what you're trusting to, to fix this world's problems. I hope you work on this world's problems because we are meant to be a people of justice. But I, what I hope you trust most is even if nobody says his name and even if we don't see his hand clearly, what I hope you trust most is that God is on his throne. God is ruling. God is bringing justice to pass every day. God is watching over his people. God is recording the prayers of his people. And God will bend the universe toward his righteousness and his justice. I hope you're trusting that. I hope we're trusting, beloved, what Jesus says when he says, and the Bible says that truth will set you free. I hope you're not afraid of truth because it's falsehood that binds us. It's lies that entangle us. It's deception that, that pulls us down in the pit. But, but truth now is a rock. Truth can be stood on. Truth can be trusted. A truth is the kind of blow that a friend gives you because they love you. And I hope we're the kind of people who can listen to truth, even hard truth, especially hard truth. Truth about our personal lives, truth about our, our, our collective people, truth about our history, because we are bound in this country right now because people are lying rather than accepting the truth. People would rather have you believe that it's black folks who are racist in this country, that it's black folks who are causing uh, the problem of racism in this country, simply because black folks have had the, uh, the temerity and the unmitigated gall to say, this ain't right to tell the story as it really has been lived, to make it clear that some things need to be challenged and changed in the name of righteousness and justice. Beloved, anybody who tells you the truth is a friend to you. Anybody who makes it plain to you is loving you. And I hope we're the kind of people who trust truth, who take our stand on it, who love truth and are shaped by it. That's when we will be set free. That's when we will set you free. Beloved, whatever your sin this morning, Jesus has died to pay the price for it. Whatever is your struggle this morning, Jesus gives the power through his spirit to, to break the chains of that bondage. 
whatever it is you have feared, Jesus has conquered it, including our worst enemy, death. He has defeated it. This morning, if you haven't already, put your faith in this Jesus. The one who saw that the thief came to steal, kill, and destroy, but announced that he has come, that we might have life and have it more abundantly. And you can have this abundant life if nothing ever changes in the world. You can have the hope of glory through faith in Jesus Christ. If you're here and you're not yet a Christian, we pray that you would turn away from your sin and put your faith in Jesus as the only one who's paid the penalty for your sin. And put your faith in him as the, the Lord who owns your life, who died to save your life. And follow him in the obedience that comes from faith. And do that with, with us as a church or some other gospel preaching church. And if you're here this morning, you've got questions about that. We would like nothing more than to talk with you about this Jesus. Ain't nobody like him. And, and, and life ain't life without him. We'd love to tell you about it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the book of Esther and all of your holy book. We thank you, Lord, for how you equip us for every good work through your word, for how there's life in your word and help in your word, how there's correction in your word and encouragement in your word, and how your spirit takes your word and makes it alive to your people. We pray, O oh Lord, this morning that your word would live in our hearts well beyond this moment, well beyond this sermon. Let this, let this word live in our hearts. Let it bear fruit. Let it, let it sprout up. Create faith and righteousness and hope through Jesus Christ. We live in a terribly unjust world. Injustices of all kinds. Some of it personal, some of it systemic. And sometimes it's overwhelming. Sometimes we don't know what to feel, and, or we feel all the feels, and, 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 and we need you. We need you in this world. Help us to bear faithful witness, and help us to know where to draw the lines, and help us to know how to love, how to love, oh Lord, in such an unloving world, so that you would be glorified, and we would be seen to be your disciples, and Jesus would be praised, and souls would be saved. Do this, we pray, here in our neighborhood. Do this throughout our city. Do this throughout our nation. Do this throughout the world, we pray. Watch over your church and bless her. In Jesus' name, amen.